Amen. Man, it's good to be back worshiping with you. You guys can be seated. Thank you, worship team, for leading us to the throne room of God and making sure that we're giving him the praise that he deserves. And uh, what a sweet thing that we get to open our Bibles, right? So let's open our Bibles together and go with me to the book of Exodus. We are back in the book of Exodus. Why don't you have a copy of God's Word? And so if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming around right now, and you can just get their attention. They'd love to give you one. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, please take that one with you. That's a gift from us to you. We'd love you for you to have that. Or you can follow along with us in uh, the Bible app. And we are going to be preaching through Exodus chapter 19 today. We're going to actually take the entire uh, chapter and look at that. And I know uh, uh, we, we picked up last week in chapter 18, and, and uh, we we took, I, I, we took an, a big, long break from the book of Exodus. In fact, we took a four-month break, and now we're finally getting back into this. And I know I said this last week, but I just want to reiterate something that's uh, really important for us to understand uh, the way we kind of operate around here. Our, our normal MO is to get into books of the Bible and just start working verse by verse as we work through this. And, and there's some reasons that we do that. I, I think it's really healthy for us uh, to be preaching through, we're trying to preach through the whole counsel of God's word. And so as we're going verse by verse and we just get into books and we, and we just work our way through that, uh, it doesn't allow us to skip anything, right? If we're just kind of picking and choosing what we want to uh, preach on, uh, sometimes it's good for us to take a break and we need to look at some things that God is doing in our church family and, and there's some things that he needs to speak to us. But, but God has spoken to us. You don't need a message from a man. You need a message from the Lord. And so I think it's healthy for us uh, to just get into the books of the Bible and let God determine what his church needs to hear. Okay? And I think that helps us as we're learning to kind of study through the Bible, that we just kind of work through it uh, progressively. And so here we are in Exodus chapter 19, and uh, the second half is not going to take us as long as it did to get to this point, uh, but... The rest of the book of Exodus is happening here on Mount Sinai. In fact, uh, Israel is going to be here for almost a year. And, and if you're reading through uh, Exodus, uh, you remember that Exodus is actually part of what we call the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those, those are really one book. And, and so if you're reading through the Bible, you, you come to Exodus chapter 19 and we arrive at Mount Sinai, the Israelites don't leave Mount Sinai until Numbers chapter 10. It's not until Numbers chapter 10, almost a year later, that, that Israel's finally going to take off from this spot. Uh, but God's going to do some pretty sweet things. He brought them out of slavery, but he didn't just uh, deliver them so that he could just drop them off in the wilderness, like, have a nice life, enjoy your freedom. No, he, he brought them out because he's going to lead them into a deeper relationship with himself because he wants them to know him. It's just kind of crazy if you think about it, that, that, that this God of the universe who, who, who made everything, that, that, that he would be interested in having a relationship with any uh, of the people that he created, especially after we rejected him and, and rebelled against him and wanted nothing to do with him, that, that, that he would want to have a relationship with the people that he created. And Israel here in chapter 19 is about to just experience a, a jaw-dropping meeting on the mountain where they're going to be confronted with the awesome presence of God who makes himself known and who wants this relationship. The 
the Westminster Shorter Catechism, maybe some of you are familiar with it, this was written in the 17th century, uh, tries to answer the question of, of why are we here? What, what, what's, the, what's the purpose in life? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, that, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Think, think about this. this. This is going to be uh, pretty amazing if you latch onto this. The, the, the purpose of your life, the point of why you're here is to worship God. But not, but not just like that, that we would worship some distant deity out of some sort of obligation that we have, but that we would know him and that we would enjoy him and, and, and that we would love him because he wants to have a relationship with us. And so what I want you to see as we dive into Exodus chapter 19, here's, here's a big idea. This will be helpful for us. What, what I want us to be kind of blown away with is this. Having a relationship with a holy God is an incredible privilege. Having a relationship with a holy God is an incredible privilege. He's, he has revealed himself to us in his word so that we can know him. But, but there's some things here that we're gonna see uh, that are honestly, they're, they're kind of shocking. I'm, I've been praying and hoping that Exodus chapter 19, it might kind of just uh, shake up your view of God and maybe even explode the box that we sometimes try to, to fit him into, all right? Israel's seen some pretty sweet things up to this point. They, they've seen uh, God bring the, the 10 plagues. They've seen him part the waters of the Red Sea. He provided manna for them. He's been leading them around by a pillar of fire at night and a, 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 a pillar of cloud by day, and he's leading them through the wilderness. But, but, but God's about to take their relationship to the next level, and they're about to experience his presence like they've never known before as they meet with God. And it's actually a little bit jarring and my hope and prayer as we, we dive into this is, is that um, this puts us in our place a little bit. And that we would really stand in awe at the awesome presence and the majesty of this God. And, and just consider how amazing it is that we could have a relationship with him. Okay, so we're going to read a lot. All right. In fact, by the way, uh, in, in a few weeks, um, I'm going to have to do this a little bit differently uh, because we're going to start taking like chapters at a time on a Sunday. So I'm going to have to tell you to read ahead of time before you come. But today we're going to read through all of chapter 19 together. And I, I want you to just get an impression of who God truly is as we read this. So we're in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1 says this. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the, that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And, and so Moses reported these words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And when Moses told, told the words of the, uh, of, the Lord, uh, of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for all the people around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it because whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And, and, and then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the mountain for you yourself warned us saying set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. It's a lot, and I want to confess to you that, that, that some of the order of events and some of the details that we're reading here are a little bit uh, confusing, like, like how many trips did Moses actually make up and down the mountain? It, it, it seems like he makes three separate trips up and down here in this chapter. He's going to make more trips uh, in, in subsequent chapters here, but, but, but how did he consecrate the people, and what did that look like, and, 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 and was God's uh, uh, original intention to let them all come up the mountain, like it seems like in verse 13, or did he uh, change the plan, or, or, or was it always God's intention for only Moses, and then later Aaron to come up, or, or, or do all the people, what, 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 who hears what? Do, they, do all the people hear God speaking, especially as we're getting ready to move in? to the Ten Commandments in chapter 20? Do all the people hear that, or did, does just Moses hear that? Some, some of these details are, are, are kind of confusing, but the overall impression is really clear. God is bringing his people into a covenant relationship with himself, and he's preparing to give them the law, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. He's, he's gonna give them his expectations, but before they do that, they see this awesome display of his power and his holiness. And so what I want to do this morning is, as we just kind of work through this, this chapter, I want to make uh, three theological and applicational observations, okay? What we're going to try to do is, is uh, just get a, a big picture, kind of step back and appreciate uh, what's going on here. So, so here's the first observation that I want to make. It's this, and we're trying to make some application here as well. We are saved, so we obey him. 
I want you to see that in the text here. That, that we are saved, and so we obey him. Listen, it's not the other way around. We are not saved because we obeyed him. We are saved, and so therefore we obey him. The reason that we want to obey the Lord is because he has saved us. Now, we're about to get into the, the law and the commandments and all these expectations. What I want you to see here is that salvation precedes the law. Salvation comes first. And this is kind of a biblical pattern that's on display here that, that just highlights how God deals with his people. We see, we see Moses, he makes his first trip up the mountain because he's the one that's gonna speak for God to the people. And so God says to him, verse three, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So, so here's the first thing that God wants to tell his people. This is a sweet, incredible meeting that they're about to have. The first thing he wants is right there in verse four. Do you see it? Look, look at verse four. This is what he wants them to see first. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The first thing I want you to know is that I'm the one who saved you. Before we get into like, what, what, what I want you to do and, and, and how I want you to live and those expectations, before, like, before that, don't, don't forget what I've already done for you. See, salvation comes before God gave his law and commandments. Think, think about it this way. God hadn't put any stipulations on them before he decided to uh, go and rescue them out of slavery in Egypt. It's not like they were crying out to God and, 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 and he was in that moment. He's like, okay, listen, listen, I'll, I'll make you a deal. I've got like 10 rules. If you, if you keep these 10 rules for say like, like a month, then I'll come down and I'll see if I can get you out of this. Okay, so this is typically how it works in parenting. We use this technique a lot, especially in our household, where, where, where we'll come alongside of our kids and we'll, we'll say, listen, if you eat your broccoli and if you don't act like a bunch of crazy lunatics, I'll let you out of timeout. But you gotta do something. You gotta, you, you gotta earn it in, in a sense. But, but, but what's crazy to me is that, that the Israelites hadn't done anything to earn this or deserve it. The reason that God came down to save them, it was displaying his own character. If you remember what we studied as we were going through the earlier chapters of the book of Exodus, we saw that it was, it was God's, he was moved with compassion when he heard the cries of his people. In fact, it was out of his grace, it was out of his mercy that he took action to save them. At the end of chapter two, we read these words. The people were crying out and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So the reason that God came to deliver them and rescue them out of slavery is because, if you remember, he'd made some promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In fact, he said he was going to bless them and their descendants. And, and the point that we're seeing there in the text is that God hadn't forgotten. He, he told them that he was going to do this. And, and he, he tells Moses, I think, here in verse 3, he says, Say to the house of Jacob, which is the reminder that the, the promise that he had made was to Jacob and his household that he was going to bless them. And so what we're seeing here is, is, is the fact that God is faithful 
that when he says he's going to do something, he does it. And Moses is quite literally standing on the evidence of God's faithfulness. Because if we remember back to chapter 3, remember back when uh, Moses saw the burning bush? Remember that? So, so God shows up and he met with Moses on the mountain uh, in, in this burning bush. And God made him a promise back in chapter 3. He said this, This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And guess which mountain they're literally standing on right now. See, God has been proving that when he says he's going to do something, he does it. God was faithful to his promises and his character, and he saved them, even though Israel had done nothing to deserve it. And he says it was like an, like an eagle, like an eagle that cares for its helpless young. And, and, and God saved them before he put any expectations on them for how to live. But it's because he saved them, then verse 5, he says, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That, that word obey in the Hebrew is a really important word. That, that's the word shema. Shema. And we actually see that word show up again in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In fact, this becomes uh, the most sacred, most important scripture to all the Jews. Uh, this, this is one of the, uh, the, the crux of the Old Testament right here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is this word shema. They even call it shema because it, the, the word means to hear or to listen. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, hear, O Israel, shema. Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The word means to listen, but not just to hear, but listen and actually obey. And so what God's doing right now is saying, there's an expectation that God's people are going to listen. They're going to live in obedience because of what he's done for them. Does that make sense? So, so we're seeing a pattern here that's really the gospel. This is how God works with us. That, that Jesus rescued us, that he saves us, and then he calls us to live for him in obedience to his word. So it does matter how you live. Now, no, uh, we're constantly and rightly reminding you that your, your standing before God uh, is not dependent on what you do because it's secured through what Jesus did for you. And, and there's so much freedom in that. You can just rest in that. It's not, it's not based on your performance. But uh, that freedom is not a license to just live however you want as if it doesn't really matter what you do. Now, the good news of the gospel is nothing that you do is going to change God's love for you and your standing before him. That, that if you've uh, trusted in Christ, if you, you are saved by grace through faith in what Jesus did for you, then you have the righteousness of Christ. Nothing's going to take that away. But the fruit or the evidence that that's actually true in your life is that we will see a, a growing desire to come under God's word in submission to him and live in obedience to him because you love him. And it's not just that you're going to say it, but you're going to demonstrate your love, Jesus says, by this. You love me, that you would obey my commandments, that we would be obedient to Christ. Now, the reality is I was thinking about this. Um, it's not very popular right now um, to tell people in our culture that there's an expectation for that, how they have to live. This, 
you know, saying that there's like a standard and you, you, you got to keep God's standard and actually hold people accountable. Even in the church, like that's just not very powerful. We don't want to say those kind of things. I want to tell you this. When we preach God's word, it's a call to holiness for God's people. That, that we're going to speak the truth. This is what God says. Now we want to speak the truth in love. But I hope you know that we're not being mean. And we're not hurting you when we're calling you to continual repentance and submission to Christ and his word. Because this is who we are. And this is actually for your good. And so let me be clear here. We're not, for unbelievers, people that have not put their faith in Christ, we're not calling unbelievers to be like Jesus. We're calling unbelievers to believe in Jesus because they're not like Jesus and they have failed miserably in their sin and they're fallen uh, short of the glory of God. They need a savior, just like you did when you recognized your need for Christ. And that's the thing. For, for those of you who have come to that realization and, and, and you've recognized your need for Jesus and, and you've trusted in what he did for you and dying on the cross for your sins, then God is calling you to follow him to walk with him in this relationship where you're gonna become more like him. You're gonna be holy as he is holy. And, and what we're wanting to see is progress in that. Can I just tell you, like, I'm, I'm so fired up. I love what God is doing in, in, in bringing more people to our church and our church is growing in that. We, we praise God for that. We're so thankful for that. But, but in one sense, what we're really wanting to see is spiritual growth, the kind of growth that we would say there's no other way to explain than that, that the spirit of God is at work, that you're progressing in your discipleship, you're following Jesus as a disciple that's growing in your ability to put off sin and, and we're not living the way our old self was and we're growing in obedience to him because when that happens, that means that the spirit of God is at work inside of you to make you more like Jesus. That's what we're after. The reason that we want to live for him is because he has saved us. Okay, so let me, let me make the uh, second theological and applicational observation of this uh, story that we're looking at here. If you're taking notes, note this. We are set apart so that we can make him known. God's actually uh, setting us apart. And I want to see the parallel of what's happening here to the children of Israel. Look at, look at verse 5. He says this, you shall be my treasured possession." And you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, so there's going to be something unique, something special about Israel and their relationship with Yahweh, the Lord. That out of all the nations, God was choosing Israel. But, but sometimes we, we, we get this like, misunderstanding and this wrong impression uh, that, that in the Old Testament, God came along and he chose the children of Israel, but things didn't really work out so great because they messed up and, and, and failed. And so God had to scrap his original plan and start over in the New Testament. And that's why we have the church. Like he tried with Israel, that didn't work. So now he's trying with the church. But that's a misunderstanding of God's intentions for what he's doing right here in Exodus chapter 19. But when he's coming, he's trying to choose, help them understand, I've chosen you, and he wants them to be what he calls a holy nation. He wants them to be morally pure, that they're going to be set apart. He is setting them apart, which is why, actually, he tells Moses, you've got to go consecrate 
the people. Before they go meet with God, they have to be consecrated. That, that idea is being set apart, kind of like when you are setting the table for, for Thanksgiving or, or for Christmas dinner. I'm guessing that, that most of you, while you were doing that, you got like family all around, this is a special time, you probably didn't just use paper plates. And maybe, maybe some of you did because you just didn't even want to have to deal with the dishes afterwards. You just wanted to go take a nap, and that's fine. But, but most of the time when we have kind of a special moment like that, we, we, we bust out the, the, the fine china, or we've got some sort of dishes that are set aside. They're set apart for a special occasion. That's what God's doing here. He's trying to help them understand that, that, that I'm setting you apart for a purpose because God wanted to use them. And they were going to be dedicated to serve him. The text says, verse 6, says that they were going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, that doesn't really make sense. Like, if you know the story and where this is going, you're kind of like, well, how does that work? I mean, are they, are they all priests? Because he's about to um, start the Levitical priesthood. And so, so, so why does he say that they're all going to be a a kingdom of priests, that doesn't really make sense. Well, here's the, here's the deal. He's not saying that uh, every single one of them are gonna become Levitical priests that are gonna serve in the tabernacle, which we're gonna see uh, in a few chapters. But he, what he's saying is every one of them has been called to function in a priest-like way to the nations around them. The priests were to make known God's ways to the people. And every single one of them, as a nation, uh, are being called to function in that way to make known God and his ways to the nations around them. And I think this is kind of parallel because the fact that God addresses Israel as the house of Jacob in verse 3 points to the fact that this covenant that he's making is a fulfillment of the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, the promise was that he was going to bless them But God had told them, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what that means is that that, that it was always God's plan to set Israel apart so that through them he could bless the nations. So all of a sudden we start realizing this makes the sense of the whole Bible. That it's not like God tried in the Old Testament, it failed, didn't work, it's got to start over. This was his intention, that he was going to send his son, Jesus, through the line of Israel, and Jesus would be the Savior for the entire world. But even in the Old Testament, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests that were pointing people to God. And how did they do at that? Yeah, not so hot. Kind of the whole story of the Old Testament is Israel just failing miserably to point people to uh, the Lord. Even though, verse 8, uh, after, as, after Moses came and told them what God said, they're like, hey, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're, we're going to do they're, they're like so confident in themselves, like, we got this thing. And they don't do it at all, do they? But, but Jesus was true Israel, who comes and fulfills the law. And, and actually, he is the, the great high priest Not only does he make known the ways of the Lord, he is the the word of God, but he makes it possible for us to come and to have a relationship with the Lord. But I want you to see, uh, I want you to look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. I've got this for for you on the screen because uh, there's another parallel here. I want you to see what God calls those of us 
who believe in him now. And, and, and notice the language parallel between Exodus. First Peter uh, says this, but you, and he's talking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see that? So what, what God is saying to us now is saying we are all now called to function like priests who point people to the Lord. We, we are set apart for a purpose. And, and what's the purpose? Well, it says that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We get to go tell other people how excellent is this God who saves us. It is such a privilege to have a relationship with this holy God. But he doesn't want us to keep it to ourselves. He intends for us to spread the word so that others might know him and enjoy him too. And so I want you to just consider for just a minute that this is why you're here. I know at the beginning of the new year, we're all thinking about ways that we can kind of improve ourselves. And, and I just want you to think about this, that there is a greater purpose. There's a greater reason that you're here. It's bigger than your own comfort or your own popularity or, or your own self-improvement or personal sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. You are here for a greater purpose, that God has literally set you apart and he has sent you here to tell other people that it is possible to have a relationship with this holy God because of what Jesus has done. We're called to live sent and make disciples. God wants to use you in that. And it made me think of a, a, a verse that my parents, I remember my parents teaching me when I was a kid. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. Maybe you're familiar with it. It says this. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You're set apart for this. Not, not like the paper plate that you just chuck afterwards. This is something that you're setting apart that God wants to use you for an incredible purpose. So it does matter how we live. We obey him because he saved us, but we want to live in such a way that we would make him known to others. Let me make the, the third theological observation, just one more thing that, that I think we see here in this story, and uh, it, it, it's this. Note this. We need a mediator so that we can be in his presence. We need a mediator if we're going to be in the presence of God. Now, now, we're coming to the point, and I think this is the thing that stands out the most here, is just God's awesome presence. And, and, and Moses is functioning as a mediator here. He's going, literally, he's going back and forth from the Lord, back to the people of Israel, back to the Lord, back to the people. Three times, he's going up and down the mountain. I just want you to think of, that's a pretty incredible workout, right? When you're hitting the gym over the next three weeks until your New Year's resolution runs out, while you're sweating it out, I just want you to think about Moses going up and down the mountain as a mediator. So, so he comes back down in verse 7 to tell people what God had said, and then he goes right back up in verse 8 to report the words to the Lord. And God announces him this, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear you when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So, so it's important for God to establish the legitimacy of Moses so that the people will know that when Moses speaks, he's speaking for God. We gotta pay attention, we gotta listen. But the fact that God is coming to meet them is some pretty serious business. 
This is a little more intense than like grandma's coming over to the house. All right, grandma's coming over. We gotta like clean up a little. No, no, no. This is the God of the universe is coming. The one who made everything, the one who is sustaining everything, he's in control over everything. The one that we saw parted the waters of the Red Sea, the one who provided manna for us in the wilderness, that God is coming. And so, man, that's pretty serious. So Moses says you gotta, you got to consecrate yourself. He actually sets limits. There's some, there's some barriers here. Don't get too close. In fact, there's a warning, verse, verse 12 there. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. There, there's just this overall impression that this is not a God to be messed with. He is holy. And one does not simply walk into the presence of a holy God. Verse 16, it says, on the morning, uh, the third day, there were, there were thunders and lightnings, and there's a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet. So this, it's kind of chaotic. Things are a little crazy in here. How, how many of you, just curious, how many of you like thunderstorms? Anybody who just like, yeah, it's pretty awesome, isn't it? I grew up in Ohio where it was nothing, so it's a super flat, and you could th- see thunderstorms coming from a mile away, uh, literally. And, and, and then we also had tornadoes. I always thought, what a sweet job it would be to be one of those storm chasers. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else want to do that? I think that's fantastic. There's something absolutely awe-inspiring about seeing the power and the force of nature in storms. And and, and think about this. Israel has seen some pretty sweet things already. They've seen the plagues. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. But they have never seen anything like this. This is an audio-visual overload with such intensity that the text says the the people in the camp, they're trembling. They're, They're freaking out. The, the, the text actually gives us this, this impression that they're, they're not all just like rushing out with excitement, like God's here, let's go, like let's go meet it. No, no, it, it seems like they're, they're in their tents and they're shaking in fear. And Moses literally has to like drag them out of the camp, like come on, we gotta go meet with the Lord. And he puts them in front of the mountain. Just imagine what that might have been, looking up and seeing that the, the, the whole mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke is going up like a kiln and it's just wrapped in it and the whole mountain is trembling greatly. When when we read this picture, it it should remind us of chapter three because God's already shown up in fire. Back in chapter three, we saw God had met with Moses in that burning bush on the mountain and now here he is, he's back on the same mountain but this time, it's not just a bush, the entire mountain is on fire. It's just this blazing inferno and there's so much smoke, they can't even see the top of this thing and they can feel the whole mountain trembling and rumbling underneath them. Does this shake up anybody's view of God a little bit? Have have we lost our sense of how awesome God is? And this is a meeting that we, we, we begin to appreciate, that it is such an incredible privilege for us to have a relationship with this holy God. So thankful for that. But we can't let the closeness that we enjoy with him because we have this relationship diminish his greatness in our minds. How can, how can, we, how can we gather together on Sunday mornings and, and, and try to worship this awe-inspiring creator and sustainer of the universe who exists in power and in majesty and be bored? 
Like how, do, how do we get together and open up God's word and expect that we're going to see and encounter him in glory and be thinking about the playoffs this afternoon or thinking about what we're going to eat for lunch or, or, or yawning when, when he should be taking our breath away? Like I know you've seen some pretty sweet things. You, you've probably seen some amazing things in your lifetime. You've been to Disney World. Uh, you've, you've been to uh, the Grand Canyon. You see, you've, you've seen the ocean. You've seen the hot now light on at Krispy Kreme. I mean, you've seen some incredible things in your lifetime. You have never seen anything as awesome as this. And, and, and the, the, the cool part is as we read the scripture, we understand this promises that there's coming a day where we are gonna stand before this holy God and we are going to see Jesus face to face in all of his glory and all of his majesty. And I think about what that moment is gonna be like. I think it's literally gonna take our breath away. I was trying to imagine what that's gonna be. And the closest thing I could, I could think about in my own experiences is the time that I went bungee jumping in college because I was stupid and young, didn't know any better. So I, I decided to go bungee jumping. I gotta tell you, it was so much fun. It was an incredible experience, but I'd never actually seen anybody. I mean, it was, you know, I kind of knew what happened generally, but the thing I didn't know, after the first plunge, after you, and I went first, so I didn't get the opportunity to see my buddies do this, but, but I jumped down there, and I didn't realize how high this thing shoots you back up, okay? And so uh, it's basically just one big giant rubber band. And so you fall all the way back down and then it shoots you back up and there's this moment of like absolute weightlessness before you start plunging back down. Uh, listen, uh, in that moment, I couldn't have screamed like a girl if I wanted to. It, like I was just, oh, I, I think meeting God is gonna be like that. I don't think we're gonna say anything. In fact, I think there's actually pretty good biblical precedent for this. Isaiah, in chapter six, Isaiah six, he, he sees a vision, just a vision of the Lord, and, and he's undone with that. He says, woe is me. John, in Revelation chapter one, sees Jesus, and he falls down like a dead man. We need to recover our sense of awe and fear in God's presence. I mean, how, how can we stand in the presence of such an awesome and holy God and still live. I think it actually becomes obvious for Israel. They, they realize uh, they didn't belong in the presence of God. They're, they're, they're freaking out about this. But Moses went up on the mountain in their place. And most of them are probably feeling like, I'm glad it's him and not me. But the writer of Hebrews is actually thinking about this very scene on Mount Sinai and reflecting, and, and I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 12. He's, he's thinking about how it's possible for us now to come boldly into the presence of God. Here's, here's what he says. He says, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, not, not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You see, we needed a mediator who was, who was like Moses, who God calls up on the mountain to represent the people before him and make known his ways to them, but we needed somebody greater than Moses. Like, I'm sure that this meeting on a mountain left a mark on Israel. I mean, how do you, how do you not have, like, this, this is like on a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I, I, wish, I wish that I could tell you that it changed them for good and they never forgot about it and, and, and they always lived in light of his holiness and submission and obedience. 
But as we're going to see, it doesn't really take them long to just completely forget all about this and run right back into their sin. And the point of what we're going to see in the story of Israel is not, I mean, it, we, we read that and we're like, wow, the stupid Israelites. That's a picture of our heart. Which is why we needed a mediator, Jesus, who would not only stand in our place, but he would die in our place. So that we, who are undeserving sinners, could stand before this holy God and live and worship him and enjoy him. And it is such an incredible privilege to have a relationship with the holy God. But, but, but the writer of Hebrews, we were looking at chapter 12. Here's how he ends that chapter. And I think this is how we apply this scripture right here. Listen to this. Here's what he says. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Listen, that's talking to the church. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I wonder how my seeing the awesome and holy power of God as he truly is would change our attitudes in worship when we gather together. Here's what I want to do. We don't uh, often do this, but I want to give you just a moment to spend a little bit of time in prayer. Uh, just personally before the Lord. And maybe it'd be good for us to just let God kind of blow up the box that we try to fit him in. Because even if you feel like you've got a big view of God, he's so much bigger than that. And so maybe right where you're at, just in the quietness of your heart, just you and the Lord, just doing business, you might need to just kind of confess, like, Lord, I, 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 forgive me for having such a small view of you and not worshiping you in reverence and in awe. And as we stand before a holy God, this is a great opportunity for us to just praise Jesus, that he would send his son so that we could not just live but enjoy being in God's presence. Just praise God for that. we've all got things going on and things that kind of distract our focus. But nothing is more important than our view of you. What an incredible privilege it is that, that we get to barge into the throne room of heaven and talk to our Father who wants to listen, who's not annoyed. 
kick us out because you don't have time for us. That we can have a relationship with you and worship you. And so we're thankful for the hope that we have because of Jesus, that we're going to get to enjoy you for all of eternity. Lord, even in this moment, we're so thankful for that intimacy and the closeness that we share with you. But I pray that we, we don't let that diminish our view of your greatness and your power. You're a holy God. And so I pray that you would teach us what it really looks like to be a people who, who still fear you. The terror has been removed. We praise God for that. But we still want to fear you in reverence and in awe. Lord, I pray that you'd help our church to grow in our knowledge of you and hunger and thirst for you. And thank you that you will fill us. Thank you for what you've accomplished for us so that these things can be true in our lives. And we give you praise for it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.